Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, in what is one of the greatest prayers ever recorded for us, Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or find somebody next to you, make sure you're following along because we want to hear from God this morning, and that is what we are going to do. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is God's Word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that you may so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, and we give you praise You, the triune God, are worthy of all praise, and so we ask that you would be glorified in this church here today through the singing, even as we hear now your word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive it and to respond in obedience to it. We praise you that you have given us this privileged position in Christ and Christ in us. And we thank you for even the access that we have to you, to your throne, to come now. And as we consider even the passage before us, we do lament the fact that there are many people here in this city who are without hope, who are weak, who need the strengthening of the Spirit in their inner being. There are many of us here who need that, and so we request that you would give it to us for your glory. We do pray for the strengthening of the churches, the churches in this particular region. We think of Grace Church of Cochrane, the church plant that we sent out over three years ago, and we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them in the inner man, that they would not be distracted from the mission that you would have for them, but that they would be a people who are humble and contrite before you and who tremble at your word. We pray that that would be true for many of the churches in this city, that your word would be preached faithfully, and as it is, it would bear much fruit in your people. We do, even as we consider that you are the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, we ask these big requests, even the the requests that we've asked many times for a true revival, a true revival of the Spirit where your Spirit would give Life where there is death. He would bring hope where there is only sorrow and sadness. 
and that you would begin this good work even in us here today. We pray for our leaders, for our prime minister, for our new premier, for MLAs and MPs and for the mayor and for various other levels of government. We think even of the Calgary Police Services and we ask that you would grant wisdom to those who lead and make decisions in that sphere. We do ask that you would grant comfort to us. Many of us are filled with sorrow. We're anxious. We're confused. We're maybe even paralyzed in fear about decisions that we have to make. And so we ask for your help, for your strengthening, even in our hearts today. And now as we come to your word, we ask that you would be glorified in it, cause us to receive it in faith, and I ask that you would keep a guard over the door of my mouth that I might not sin against you, but speak what is true and needful for your people today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, do the concepts of privilege and power make you feel a little bit uneasy? Perhaps you've heard it said, and maybe it's even been said to you, that's just your privilege talking. And oftentimes, we see in especially academic circles these days and, and political circles among the elites of society, ironically enough, they're the ones that are saying that we need to repent of our privilege. It's something to be ashamed of. As I say, it's a bit hypocritical. But I would submit to you that privilege is not something that we as Christians ought to repent of, but to embrace and then to leverage for the good of Christ's people and the glory of God. Power is not inherently wrong. After all, even as we see in this passage in verses 20 and 21, it's very clear that God is all-powerful, that He is omnipotent. He has all power, and yet He is all good. And so it is possible to have power and goodness coexist. With great privilege comes what? Great responsibility. Those who have power are to use it, to channel it for good. And as I said, the good of Christ's people, His church, as well as, and ultimately, the glory of God. Well, the Apostle Paul was among the privileged company of believers in Jesus Christ. And his desire for the church was that they would become more powerful, not less. And that they too would leverage their privileges in Christ and turn to the Father in prayer. See, there's a case to be made that the book of Ephesians, especially the first three chapters, really highlights then for us the privileged position of believers in Christ. You see that phrase repeated over and over by Paul? Believers are in Christ. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It's a repeated phrase of Paul, and so what he does is he highlights then your and my position through faith in Christ is that of one that is very privileged. It's a very privileged position that we enjoy. And Paul desires that the church would come to know this, not just intellectually, but to embrace it, to experience then what it is to 
be a privileged believer in Jesus Christ, called out of darkness, called from death to life. He wants us to, rather than repent of our privilege, to embrace it. And we don't embrace it with pride, do we? Or at least we ought not to. Because as you see throughout the book of Ephesians, as you see throughout the entire Bible, the fact that we have this privileged position is not because you or I were so clever. It's not because you or I were so righteous. But it is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our salvation, our privileged position then, is the gift of God. And of course then, Paul, as we see here in this prayer, he leverages his privileged position in Christ and prays for the believers. Now it's interesting, oftentimes you or I, we don't publish our prayers. Most of our prayers, I would imagine, are done in private. You know, we've got corporate prayer where we pray publicly. I just prayed a, a pastoral prayer publicly. But many of our prayers are, are private. And yet here Paul is publishing for the believers. He's, he's letting them know specifically what he's praying for them. And he does this in order that they would be encouraged and also, and also that they would imitate him. Because if you look at chapter 6, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, at the very end, he sums up this armor of God passage there in chapter 6, verse 18, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, so Paul here, he gives us these prayers that we too then would go make supplication for the saints. And in particular, what I want us to consider this morning are three features of Paul's theology-filled prayer here that we ought to imitate. We could go through phrase by phrase. We could have a sermon on, on each phrase of this. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who had, I think it was 15 or 17 sermons on this passage. We're going to have one here for about 40 minutes or so. But I want us to consider then these three features that we ought to then imitate even in our own praying. And the three features, you have it there in your outline, that we ought to first bow with boldness. Secondly, pray for spiritual power. And then third, we're going to see that we ought to praise God for his super ability. Praise God for his super ability. Now, as I was preparing this week, I was thinking back to several sermons that we've had over the last number of months, and notice that there's been a major theme throughout all the sermons. Pastor Gavin, a while back, preached uh, that famous sermon in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, Pastor Clint's made a number of applications, even in his uh, series on holy war, to prayer, encouraging believers to join us for our prayer meeting on, on Wednesday, which is coming up this Wednesday. So again, I encourage you, join us join us. And maybe you're starting to think, well, like, is this just a, a one-trick show? Like, is this all these pastors preach about prayer? Can they not figure out anything else? Well, I would submit to you that the reason why we talk so much about prayer is because 
there are not many pages in the Bible where prayer is not either explicitly or implicitly implied. That is, the entire life of the Christian is one of dependence on God, submission to Him, of coming before Him and seeking Him, even as children. So it's simply what happens when you preach through the Bible is that you touch on prayer often, regularly. And even as I said, we see it here in the book of Ephesians. It's a, it's a classic example. I think these Ephesian believers were maybe, you know, oh, Paul seems to be talking a lot about prayer. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul gives this prayer for the saints. He prays uh, for spiritual wisdom and insight. And then here in chapter 3, Paul prays for power. And then at the end, that passage that we looked at, Paul once again reminds them that actually spiritual warfare Engaging in spiritual warfare requires prayer, supplication. And so the Spirit knows what we need more than we know what we need. And He knows that we need these regular reminders, these regular promptings to pray. Because if you're anything like me, and I think many of you are because I've had conversations with you, but if you're anything like me, prayer is often one of the first things that gets kind of set to the side. One of the first spiritual disciplines that's neglected And this to the spiritual detriment of ourselves and our churches. So let's hear together then the Spirit's instructions through the words of the Apostle Paul as we consider then these three features. So the first, the first is that we ought to bow in boldness. You see that there in verse 14. Paul begins his prayer, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now if you glance back, at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see the same phrase used, for this reason, I, Paul, and then what happens is Paul kind of takes us on a bit of a scenic detour. He takes us on a scenic detour, and he looks at, then, the majesty of the mystery of the gospel, namely that God has chosen to now incorporate Gentiles and give the gospel to them. And I'm assuming most of you here are Gentiles. And so part of the mystery is that you and I get to receive then the blessings in Christ. So Paul takes this scenic detour, looking at the mystery, the manifold wisdom of God in the church. You see that in verses 2 through 13. And then he comes back in verse 14 in this prayer, for this reason. So what, what Paul's doing is he's picking up on what he was saying, starting back in verse 1. He's coming back to his prayer that he was going to originally do. So there's a parenthesis almost around verses 2 through 13, and now back to the original thought that Paul had. And so when we think of for this reason, we have to ask ourselves, well, what reason does Paul have in mind, right? What's his reason for praying? What's his motivation? What's, what's motivating the man to bow before the Father? Well, it's due to everything that Paul has outlined previously, from chapters 1 all the way through to this point. It's a theology-packed section of Scripture that focuses on the gracious salvation of God accomplished by Jesus Christ and applied to us by the Spirit. So it's a very Trinitarian doctrine. Salvation is a very Trinitarian doctrine. And if you go back in chapter 2 as an example, you see there that Paul is teaching here that both Jews and Gentiles have now been reconciled to one another. And ultimately to God through Jesus Christ, through the blood, through the cross of Christ. There's been a reconciliation. 
A, a new relationship where there was once enmity and hostility. Now there is peace. And Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 18, look with me. He says, for through him, that is Christ, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then just jump over to chapter 3, verse 11. Very similarly, Paul says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul, the reason why Paul is praying is because Christ has purchased an access to the Father. He's purchased an access to the Father. He's actually, as I said, leveraging this privileged position, this gift that Christ has won by his own blood. Paul now bows his knees before the Father with boldness because he knows he's got access. He has access. And he doesn't use this access just to ask for things for himself, although that's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask for it. Paul would, I'm sure, be praying for the Lord to strengthen himself. But you see, it's a very others-focused prayer, isn't it? It's a very others-focused prayer. He's praying for the church. Brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have such access. We have this same access to the Father because of the Son in the Spirit. Jesus has reconciled us to God. And it's really important that we get this because this is actually what's going to motivate our praying. When we recognize Christ has actually purchased an ability, a freedom, an access to the Father. Recently, Carson, our son, he's been wanting to pray at mealtimes. Uh, so we're teaching him to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. That's important. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name because it, there's a reminder here that we ought to have that any and all of our prayers are only acceptable to the Father because of the Son. Friends, prayerlessness not only stunts our growth, but as we see here then that prayerlessness is actually then a functional rejection of what Christ purchased for us. It's a functional rejection of this new covenant blessing. Think back to the Bible and, and the lack of access that the Jews had for all those years. They had to go to a temple. They had to bring sacrifices. They had to have priests intercede for them. But now, as a Christian, through Christ, we have a high priest and we can access the Father freely any time of the day or night. And so, it is that we can and we ought to come, as Paul did, to God the Father boldly as children, knowing that he hears us. He's a good father. And so you can go to him with all of your needs, with all of your concerns, with all of your anxieties, with petition, with praise, with thanksgiving. So there's a boldness here, but you also notice that there's a proper reverence that we ought to have in our praying. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. There's a posture here, a, a literal physical posture. Now, there's all sorts of postures that you see in the scriptures sometimes, and oftentimes the Jews would stand with their arms outstretched. But here, Paul is bowing. 
It's a position of reverence as one coming before someone who is royalty. I was reminded of this, and many of you were reminded of this, even as we witnessed the, the queen's funeral only a few weeks ago, right? There was lots of bowing. There's lots of bowing, reverence, right? Because there's a, there's a recognition that there's a certain dignity that that person carries by their very office. Well, God himself, not by his office, but by his being, he is God the Father. And so it is proper to bow. Well, there's, as I said, many different postures. But there is something to a posture in prayer. I don't know, maybe, have you ever bowed? Have you, have you ever bowed on your knees to the Lord in prayer? It's not like anything magical happens. But it, what it does sometimes is it helps to bring our hearts in line with our minds. It, it's, a, it's a proper posture that we ought to have as those who are coming before the Father. Because while God is our Father, He is very clearly here the Father. And Paul spells it out there in verse 15. The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, this is actually quite a difficult phrase to translate and figure out what exactly is Paul meaning. Uh, some would interpret this as, as saying, Paul saying that God is the Father of the whole family of God. The family in heaven, you know, the, the saints triumphant, and the saints on earth. So this fits contextually. You see lots of emphasis in Ephesians on the church and God as the Father over the church. So it, it could possibly mean that. However, even the grammar of this text, I think it points us in the direction of the translation that we have here in, in the translation in front of you, the ESV. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. So some would say you translate that from whom the whole family, being the church. I think Paul's point here is from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It actually is more universal. Now, this is not what... This is not teaching what the liberals taught, that God is the father of all people in a saving way. The emphasis here is on God's authority. It's on his authority, the father's authority. That is, that he has authority over all creation. In heaven and on earth, every family in heaven could refer to the angels, perhaps, and on earth. So there's an emphasis here, as I say, on on the authority that everything derives its existence from God. Just as you have existence today because of a father, right? You have an existence today because there's a father. You need a father and a mother. Well, here, the father is the head over all creation, the creator. And in fact, there's a, a nuance here, a proper nuance, even in the word family, from whom every family, the word is literally patria, which is an emphasis on the Father. And so there's a, a proper sense in which we could say maybe Paul is nuancing the fact that all fatherhood itself derives from God's fatherhood. It derives, and I think it's an important point even to consider for our day, as fatherhood is undermined, as people think that, well, we're, we're free to make up and define how fathers ought to function. No, 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 it's a recognition. God is the Father, and he's actually the template that all fathers are to follow. Now, many don't. But he is, he is the father from whom every family or even every father in heaven and on earth is named. So, so the emphasis here, either way, is very clear then on God's authority. 
either his authority over the church or his authority over all things. And just as you consider that then, as you consider then the God who is over all, who has dominion over all things, that's what naming is a function of. Naming is a function of dominion. As he has dominion over all things, what a privilege then that you and I have access to this Father, to the Father, the one and only Father. And so to ignore prayer is foolishness. It's foolishness. But it's also equally foolish to come without a sense of reverence. So we bow in boldness. It's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Kind of paradox that you end up, well, bowing is usually not a posture of boldness, but that's actually the tension that the Bible gives to us. We have free access as children who have been adopted, and yet we still come to God with reverence and respect because he is the Father. So come to him then with freedom on the basis of the Son's work, Come in boldness as children and then bow in humility as his creatures who are made in his image. So that's the first feature of Paul's prayer. There's a bold and reverent prayer that we ought to have. The second feature I want to consider this morning is that we ought to petition God for his power. Petition him for his power. You see that kind of in the bulk of this. Paul leverages his privileged access to the Father to pray for the Ephesian believers, and to pray specifically, that they would gain a spiritual power in the inner man, which as a result fulfills God's purposes for them. So what Paul's prayer, what his petitions assume, his petition for strength in the inner man, as we're going to see, it assumes then the innate weakness of humans. It assumes the inherent weakness of human hearts, and thus the need to pray for an outside power. It was Luther, who we remember Reformation, it was Luther, Martin Luther, one of the key pillars of the Reformation, who rightly recognized and said that it is the entirety of our salvation that comes from outside of us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from God. That's why we speak of it as an alien righteousness. Not alien as in UFO, but alien from outside to us. Christ's righteousness to us. The Spirit's strength to us. You see here then, what we need comes only from God and he has an abundant supply. Everything we need for life and godliness is supplied from God himself. Listen to Paul's petition there in verse 16. What does he ask? He says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, to speak of this kind of inner spiritual power, you know, maybe some of you are thinking, well, is this like Paul advertising for a spa, right? You see the, the spas out there? Oh, come find inner wellness, right? Inner power. Uh, is, is, is God just a, a therapist? You know, secularism, they'll tell people to look within to find the power that they need. And there's all sorts of gimmicks out there that are promoted as empowering people. But Paul tells us, as we see, that the power we need to change is a gift that comes from God's glorious supply of himself. Of himself. God actually gives himself. He doesn't just give other things. He gives of himself. You see that there in the text very clearly. In verse 16, 
according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That is, God gives the very Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to empower you, to strengthen you, to strengthen your inner man. It's a gift. So Paul reminds us then that what we lack, namely power, strength in the inner man, God has in abundance. It is from the well of his riches, the riches of his own glory, that you and I find strength in the inner man. The source then of our strength to persevere in the faith, of our strength to fight against sin, of our strength to do anything that is pleasing in his sight is the Spirit himself whom God gives to those who ask. Notice as well Paul's focus here on the inner, on the condition of the inner man. Paul's focus, we could say, Paul is most concerned about the strength and conditioning, not of the physical body, although there is, Paul would say in other places, you know, it's of some benefit, but his concern is of the strength and conditioning of the inner man, of this unseen, real you. Sometimes the Bible refers to it as the soul, or the heart, or the mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it's getting at, from the inner man, the real you. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being what? Renewed day by day. Our, our outer man, though we want to take care of it, be good stewards of it, it's wasting away. There's, there's many people out there who they focus on all sorts of you know, fitness and wellness, but they don't care for their own soul. They don't care for their own soul. Paul recognizes that the core of our beings needs to be strong because like it is with our bodies, if our heart isn't strong, nothing else is. If the internal organs aren't strong, if they're not healthy, well then the rest of our body outwardly is going to feel the ramifications of that. Now, to be clear, it's not that praying or pursuing, praying for or pursuing bodily health is wrong. Uh, John talks in John's letter, in 3 John, he says, he prays that Gaius would be in good health. I was praying for good health this week. Many of you were probably praying for good health because there's sickness going all through everybody. It's okay. You, you can take your regular needs, bodily needs, even to the Lord. He's a good father. And yet, as our father, he wants us to learn to come to him with a recognition that our greatest needs aren't outside of ourselves, but actually are inside. It's our inner being that needs to be made right and our inner being that needs to be strengthened. And and it needs to be so, not only because our joy and our relationships with others are at stake, if they're not, but ultimately our eternal destiny. The state of your soul. Jesus. Mark chapter 8. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and and yet loses his soul? Right? Or what can a man give in exchange for his, his soul? The strength and conditioning of the inner man is so vital then. And we are easily distracted by so many of the externals out there. And this is, I think, where much of the 
attempts in secular psychology where they go wrong because the explanations that they give and the solutions that they give are, are usually almost entirely natural. They don't have any sense of this, this proper biblical metaphysic, as we can call it, of a proper sense of that we are spiritual beings as well, that there is an inner man, the state of our souls matters. And so Paul petitions the Lord because he knows that what's inside comes out. He petitions the Lord, strengthen these believers in the inner man. So let me just ask you, what's going on in your inner man these days? What's going on in your mind, your heart? What are you thinking about? What are you feeling? I've talked to many of you. Many, many of you are feeling great sorrow. You're feeling great anxiety. You're fixating on all sorts of things externally. Well, brothers and sisters, the great encouragement for us here is that there's actually a rich supply of strength. The riches of his glory are yours. They're yours. Christ has purchased them for you. And you ought to, you ought to go now to the Father and say, I need more of it. I'm weak. Strengthen me. Change my thoughts. Change my desires. You see, so much of our business, it happens in the inner man. So much of our sin even happens at the level of the heart, doesn't it? These desires, and then they spring forth and they bear all sorts of bad fruit. But the Lord does not lack supply to strengthen your inner man. He gives even his spirit to you. But as, we, but as I said, this prayer for power, it's a praying for a power of a different kind. Paul's not praying that they would have power so that they could seize it and take advantage of people. That's how many people, that's the natural pursuit of man. I want power so I can have, you know, a say, so I can put my stamp on things, so that I can take advantage of people and basically make myself feel better. That's not the kind of power Paul's advocating for, Paul's praying for. No, it is a power, you see that there in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Throughout the passage, there's a number of so-that's that you can see there. It's hard to know whether Paul has in mind the purpose or the result. And it's probably ambiguous enough to be both. And so, you see there in verse 17, what we just read, God's goal for us and the result of being strengthened in the inner man is that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Paul's favorite phrase in the book of Ephesians is in Christ. But here we see that there's this dual indwelling, that there's this mutual indwelling. Not only are we in Christ and secure in him, but actually Christ comes to dwell in us. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing reality of the Christian, Christian's experience, that there is a real, personal, covenantal relationship that the believer has with Christ. That's why Christians emphasize the personal relationship with God. There's a personal relationship with the living Christ that he actually comes, in a sense, dwells in the hearts of believers through faith as we receive him. So to have Christ then dwell in us through faith, what that means is that we gladly receive both Christ, Christ as both our Savior, as, as the only one who can save us from the judgment to come, as well as our Lord. The, the word Christ is the word anointed, sometimes emphasized then as the kingship of Christ, his lordship. That Christ, the Lord, 
would dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's the upside down nature of God's kingdom, isn't it? That actually, to be strengthened in the inner man is to come and to relinquish control. It's to relinquish control of our lives and to say, Lord, have your way with me. Right? To receive Christ by faith. That's actually what it means to be strong. You see very clearly there that even the fruit of faith, the the response of faith that is necessary for our salvation and for our continuing in the faith is actually a gift of the Spirit. It's something that God gives to us, though we exercise it. But, but Christ is then, as we are strengthened, comes to dwell in us. The word there, dwelling, really has this emphasis on a permanent resident. It's not, like, it's not like we become an Airbnb where Jesus is here one minute and gone the next, right? No, no, no. The believer actually becomes a permanent dwelling place of Christ by the Spirit. That is, he comes and he makes his home, and, and as he does so, as he strengthens us, he begins to do all sorts of renovating. He does all sorts of renovation in your heart. It's like those, you know, those building, those building shows. Some of you watch them. Well, they, they come in there and what do they do? They gut it, right? They pull out the studs. They pull out all the old wires. There's mold over there. Clear it out. Well, that's very much what Christ does by his spirit as he strengthens us. He, he's actually removing studs. He's pulling out and getting rid of the stink and the mold and the dog hair. He's getting rid of it all, and he's reframing it so that we are actually then a temple of the living God. That's what we become. That's what Christ is doing as he dwells in us. Now, just very practically, as we think about, as I think about what many of you are thinking about, many of you are thinking about things like Abraham Kuyper's theology, every square inch, the lordship of Christ over things like government, in society, that's true. Christ has claims to every square inch. But then the question, the question that we have to take seriously is, okay, well, does he have control of every square inch of my heart? That, that's actually Paul's focus here, is that he wants the believers, the church, to be concerned with asking for the strengthening, for the power of the Spirit, that Christ would actually rule over us beginning even over the desires of our hearts, that, that we would not just let loose and our affections would not just go any way that we want, but that they would be brought under the authority, the lordship of Christ and channeled in a way that is pleasing to him and even reflects his own heart. So, does Christ then dwell in your hearts through faith? Have you received him by faith? Have you received him by faith as Savior? And then are you, are you permitting him or are you resisting his renovating work? He's dwelling. The question is, is, is that renovating work going to be increasingly painful because the Lord has to discipline you as he clears out the clutter? Or are you going to then yield to the Spirit and allow him to work in you? So go to him then for strength which results in a relinquishing of control of your own heart to God. Paul, now then, though he transitions, so there's a focus on faith, Christ dwelling in our hearts, Paul now focuses on another Christian virtue, 
the Christian virtue of love. He transitions to another petition for spiritual strength. You see that there in the second part of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here is not so much for believers to grow in their love for Christ, although that's true, and it's the result of this. It is actually for believers to apprehend, to grasp, literally to to seize in their minds and in their hearts this experience, this apprehension of the magnitude of Christ's love for them. We love because he first loved us. And our sanctification, our, our growth in godliness, our being filled with all the fullness of God, it's downstream then from this apprehension of the incomprehensible love of God. First, you see there, Paul reminds Christians of their sure status. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, Christ's love for us is like the roots of a tree. It's the found, a solid foundation of our homes. Everything that we are and will be comes then from this sure and steady foundation of Christ's love for sinners. That, that's the foundation for it all. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love then is the foundation of all that we are and all that we would become. Paul talked about that back in chapter 1. In, love, in the last part of verse 4, in love... Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So we are rooted and grounded in love. It's, it's not our love. It's the love of Christ. That's the sure foundation. If it's our love, well then we're in big trouble. Because I don't know about you, but my love is very inconsistent. My love for Christ, my love for my wife, my love for you, it's, it's very inconsistent. That's not the roots. The roots of our Love is actually that it springs from Christ's love for us. And so Paul, what he wants the believers to know, to experience. See, this is experiential Calvinism. This is experiential Calvinism. He wants the mind to apprehend it, the heart to love it. Paul petitions the Father to strengthen believers to comprehend, verse 18, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now just pause there. Pause there. What's remarkable? How, how do we often think that we grow most? You talk with your friends, oh, my quiet time's been really bad, right? I've been really inconsistent. And while there is a proper place for personal spiritual disciplines, what's Paul, Paul's focus here? It's a comprehension of this love. It's a growing in godliness with all the saints. There, there's actually a corporate aspect to our being strengthened. Yes, the Lord strengthens us as we come to the Word, as we go in private to the Lord in prayer, but so much of the strengthening happens in the context along with the saints. So so that's the goal of the church is that together we would apprehend that we would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ, and the way that God has designed it is that we do that together. 
What you're seeing here then is that the Spirit strengthens not by some, you know, immediate zap, as it were, but through the use of means. It's often mediated. And two of the chief means we see in this passage are prayer, bold, reverent prayer, and along with all the saints, together with our brothers and sisters. That's why what you're doing here is so pivotal. It's so pivotal to your own strengthening of your inner being. So pivotal to your own apprehension of Christ's love as we sing together, as we pray together, as you fellowship together. Together we are comprehending the love of Christ, which is an incomprehensible love. There's there's a bit of an irony there as well, isn't there? We saw this this last week. We saw this this last week just a, a day or two ago. You know, our brother, sister, Hannah, and Akeen, they sent out their letter uh, testifying to God's goodness, to the way that God has strengthened them in the midst of sorrows. And I know, based on your responses, based on your responses, that that has brought encouragement and even strengthened your own faith. And so, brother Akeen and sister Hannah, thank you. Thank you for serving the church in this way, for helping us to see the love of Christ even in the midst of sorrows. And many of you have done that as well. Many of you have done that for me, for others, as we continue then, being given the strength with all the saints to comprehend the love of Christ. See, Paul doesn't just want the believers to know that God loves them. He wants them to know the vastness of this love. Notice the multidimensional aspects of Christ's love, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Four, four dimensions, right? Love in 4D. He wants them to apprehend, apprehend this magnificently wide love of Christ. Scholars debate what is meant here. You know, does Paul have anything specific in mind? Well, I think in the book of Ephesians, you can see the width of God's love. It's breadth. Paul, in chapter 2, he went to great lengths to describe that Christ's love reaches to all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. Right? There's a salvation that he gives to all kinds of people. So, pray for God to help you grasp this wide love of his, because that's what's going to enable you to love all different kinds of people. People from different cultures, different backgrounds, different likes. Pray then for God to help you grasp the magnificently wide love of Christ. As well as, Christ's love is magnificently long. The length of it. There are no intermissions in God's love for his people. Do you feel like God has maybe forgotten you? That his love is like a, like a light switch. It's on, off, on, off, on, off. That it's like going to the sports game. It's kind of like, well, here we, have, here we have 20 minutes of action. And well, now I got... I got 15 minutes of an intermission of Christ not really loving me. No, no. Christ's love for his people is long. In love, he predestined us before the foundation of the world, based not on anything that we've done, not on any foreseen merit, any foreseen choices, but on his free mercy. And that love, it continues all the way, and it holds you right to the end and even all the way through eternity. Christ's love is not only wide and long, it is high. 
so high is his love that he has raised us, Paul said. He has raised us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And one day he will raise us physically from the dead. That we might rule and reign with him for eternity. And Christ's love is magnificently deep. It's magnificently deep. So deep, Paul says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself. So low. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ephesians 2, you were dead. You were dead. Spiritually dead, destined for first and second death, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, but God has had mercy on you. That's the depth of his love. Do you see the magnificently vast love of Christ for you? If you don't see it, then you need to go to the Lord in prayer and keep pleading with him. Help me to see it. Help me to comprehend it, to grasp it, to experience it, to love it. Because again, it is a gift that comes from the Spirit, even in the inner man. Once again, we see, though, that Paul prays for the strength to apprehend this love because it is by this strength that God's ultimate purposes for us are fulfilled. So we have another so that in verse 19. At the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is another way of Paul saying that he wants believers to grasp God's love for them and, and to grow into the fullness of their salvation, to the fullness of Christian maturity, to, to the fullness of Christ's likeness. Because in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. He's not saying that we become God. This is not a deification of humanity. But it is a recognition of insofar as we are creatures growing into Christ's likeness, being filled with all the fullness of God. It is true godliness then that is the aim of Paul's prayer and ought to be then the aim of our prayers for ourselves, for one another's, for one another, as well as as we consider then the mission of the church itself. It is that we would come to apprehend the love that as a result we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Many of us can become paralyzed when it comes to decision making because we don't want to miss out on the will of God. We see very clearly here that God's will is that we would be filled. And ironically enough, again, this filling comes through an emptying of our own selves. We would be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ comes to fill us. But not to fill us by catering to our felt needs, to our sinful lusts. This being filled is a prayer to be strengthened with an increasingly Christ-centered God-exalting, Christ-imitating life. It is to be filled with God's word, with his truth, with, an, with a sense of God's purposes for us, and with his glory, with his name, the advance of his name to be most preeminent in our pursuits. It is, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's what being filled with all the fullness of God looks like. So have you considered Christ's matchless, unfathomable love for you? Are you praying that 
even as a church. I, I encourage you, just as we start, if you don't know what to pray for the church, pray this prayer. Take it out, pray through it. Pray that the Lord would strengthen us together to comprehend together the dimensions of Christ's love for us. Because what that's going to do, it's going to promote unity. All sorts of good fruit comes from a comprehension, from a grasp of Christ's love for us. So we've seen that we should pray with bold reverence because Christ gives us access to the Father. We should pray to the Father with specific, specific petitions for power because it is what fulfills his purposes in us. And then Paul pivots here in the last two verses from petition to praise. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. If you're like me, your prayer routines and your petitions are often pathetically weak and dry and even worldly because you simply do not believe. You simply do not believe, specifically believe in the Lord's ability to answer those prayers to do anything with them. We live, I was just talking with the guys before, we live in this efficiency-driven culture. We want instant results. And so prayer is kind of the last thing that we go to. Think, really? I guess I can check it off on my spiritual to-do list. But what good is it? What does it do? And, and the reason why we do that is because prayer often requires persistence. There's a persistence in prayer. And yet, if we see what Paul is saying here is he wants us to see that God's sovereignty, his authority, his omnipotence, his power, his ability, literally his super ability here, it's actually not a deterrent to prayer. It's not a deterrent. People will say, why pray if God is sovereign? Why pray if he's ordained the beginning to the end? Does it change anything? Well, no, because in God's divine design, he has chosen that your prayers, according to the power at work within you, that these things would actually bring him much glory and accomplish his purposes. See, prayer is then the means through which God's purposes in this world and even in the next are fulfilled. Paul literally is telling us here, Paul likes to make up words. He likes to make up words. He made up another word here, to do far more abundantly. He's trying to help us understand, to, to explain God's hyper, hyper ability. Literally, that's what it says. His, his super ability. God is the one with true superpower because he is omnipotent, all-powerful. And so, let me just ask you, do you pray big prayers? Do you pray big prayers? I, I'm, I'm talking like, out of this world, that seems absolutely bonkers prayers. The prayer for Justin Trudeau to be saved. For maybe that family member who is so hard to the gospel to be saved. For that Christian who is driving you nuts. For that person to be strengthened in the inner man and to be transformed, to be filled with all the fullness of God. We do not pray as we ought to because we do not believe that God is 
able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So what he's saying here is, in your prayers, dream big. Dream big. Yeah, yeah have them shaped by the Scriptures, but, but the Scriptures have some huge prayers. Pray those kinds of prayers and watch what God would do. And notice here that Paul prays for God to be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. It's, it's an amazing truth that God would be glorified in the church. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you'll quickly realize that uh, in, in the proper theological term, there's a lot of boneheads. There's a lot of boneheads, including myself at times. It's full of sinners, people who are foolish, make all sorts of unwise, even selfish decisions. And yet, in God's purposes, he has chosen to glorify himself in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, to be clear, those two go together. Paul doesn't separate those two. This is Christ's church, and so it doesn't mean that God is glorified in everything that happens in a church There's, and in every so-called church. There's many people that, or many churches that have such and such a church on their sign, and the lampstand's been removed. Why? Because Christ is not exalted. Man is put at the center. But God is glorified in the church insofar as Christ Jesus is exalted. That's important. What this means then, what this means is that we need to give up any kind of spiritual gimmicks that we're attempting to strengthen ourselves. You've got to give up the gimmicks for spiritual renewal that focus on man, that focus on certain techniques to make us better, rather than the glory of God and faith in Christ. I've had several conversations over the last couple of weeks, and actually I'd say over the last number of months, many of the pastors have, with people who, uh, they've, they've come from different churches, even in a city, and one of the repeated emphases I've heard is because they were tired of everything being so centered around man. The theology all centered around us and what we do. You know, find that inner strength. I was even talking with a guy recently who said he had conversations with a pastor here in the city, I won't mention the church, who thought it wise to advocate for the use of horoscopes. This is a pastor at a so-called evangelical church. But if we're, not, if we're not careful, we're all prone to these kinds of gimmicks, looking for these quick fixes for change, rather than the regular means that God has given to us, which is to come and bow our knees and to ask him for strength in the inner man. So before we just start focusing on all the churches out there, we've got to ask ourselves, what gimmicks are we prone to? What techniques are we trying to use to strengthen ourselves? Are we availing ourselves of these regular means that God uses to grow us? So brothers and sisters, give up the gimmicks for change and return then to the riches of his glory. Embrace your privileged position in Christ and the access that you have to the Father and go to him with all of his rich resources and seek the strength that only he can give, the power that only he can give. The Lord wants you to be powerful but not powerful in the sense that the world would think or that your natural heart would want you to have, but power 
than to bow low, to receive Christ by faith, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. So we ought to bow in boldness. We ought to petition him for his power and then praise God in his super ability, even making sure all things in our lives are God-centered. That's what we're, that's what we're praying for, is a God-centered, or in the language of Puritans, a God-entranced view of all things. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us by your Spirit to have such a view that you might be glorified in this church, that if there are any here today who have not received Christ by faith, that the Spirit would give the gift of faith, even today, that they might receive him, and that you would help us as your people not to resist you, but to yield and to seek the strength that only you can give. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.